Most work environments have rules and dress codes that implies what respect and punctuality looks like and what is worth rewarding, like hard work, drive or initiative. Have you ever objected to these or have you found them fair enough, maybe even refreshing as you feel like you're a part of a community? Maybe you felt cornered and without any other option but to just subscribe. Maybe most of us can work with being asked to wear a suit or heels, a tie or a color palette. But what if they asked you to bath and to change every day or to not have illnesses? Besides its loaded sentiments, would you wonder how they would even regulate those requests? Would you be screened for illnesses or smelled every day? A March 2017 domestic worker advert asked for just that and lots more. And without fail, the internet responded. So let's explore where this and other adverts like these stand on a scale of practical to absurd, or as some would prefer, entitled to discriminatory. I'm sitting here with my lovely co-host, Mbali. Hi. <laughs> so let's quickly read through the advert first, and we'll just highlight some of the demands that were mentioned. Um, so this was from Weinberg and Plumstead in the southern suburbs. And this was dated the 7th of March, 2017. And it says, you're expected to be diligent, willing, hardworking, smart, and quick. You're required to follow instructions and clean thoroughly and meticulously in brackets the way I want. You're expected to work long hours sometimes. You must be good with kids. You should have no illnesses. You're expected to be clean and smell good and bath and change every day, twice a day if necessary. Females only, please no males. Work is sleep in Monday to Sunday, two Sundays off every month. You must have a valid passport, which I keep while you work for me and no criminal records. Salary starts at 2,000 Rand plus food and accommodation. I'll increase your salary even after the first month if you're capable of doing all the work the way I want, in capital letters, up to 2,500 Rand. Uh, please don't contact me if you do not understand English very well. Hmm. Please read the advert carefully and only contact me if you're serious about working. There are so many issues there. Starting with the tone, Yeah. to be honest, yeah. is just laced with condescension. Yeah. I mean, to even say in the end there, that really caught me. Please to say in don't the end, contact please, me. Uh, please read... This carefully. carefully and don't contact me. What was in there about language? Yeah, so please don't contact me if you do not understand English very well. And please read the advert carefully and only contact me if you're serious about working. Sure. Well, it was very interesting, just very quickly about the English thing. So in the many um, threads that that came from just the outrage on, on um, Facebook and Twitter, they were sort of also making a joke of how they don't understand English themselves because they spelt meticulously wrong. Right. And so the kind of double standard, you know, the, the person doesn't necessarily need to be brilliant in English, but they expect their helper to be. But that's also such a strange and like abstract metric. Like, what does it mean to speak English properly? I guess it makes telling exactly what they need and want easier. You know, there's it, nothing can be lost in translation. Yeah, but I wonder, I mean, how would you, as someone reading that ad, with no real sense of what your command of the English language is, but you obviously more or less understand the ad, how would you decide whether to contact this person or not? If that is such a... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if you can read it till the end and understand all of it. <laughs> that is so weird. But yes, okay, so first of all, I take issue with the tone. But then for me... It's interesting that you say that because a lot of the times we struggle to hear tone uh, in written things. So what about this makes the tone quite clear for you? Because the tone to me is, is, is kind of expressed in the criteria. You know, in the things that she's saying. It's almost more about the things she's saying rather than how she's saying it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's using like fairly unemotive English language, but yeah. the things she's saying are loaded with tone and condescension. Mm. And it's very telling. You must have, you must be good with kids. You should have no illness. So you can yeah. read tone into content and you then there's tone in the way that something is presented. And then there's tone in what is presented. 
So I think there I'm reading it into the content. Mm. And then for me, is this not clearly, clearly a reflection of how under-regulated the working conditions are in domestic work that you can get away with an ad like this? Because I was thinking to myself, shucks, okay, social media, uh, hate speech, you know, discrimination, prejudice, where do we draw these lines? Like, should something like this be outlawed or um, condemned? Yeah. You know, should, should we find mechanisms to, to make sure that like ads like this cannot be put out in a professional capacity because they amount to some kind of discrimination or they're unethical, mm. right? And I'm trying to think of the, the difference between this and an ad, say, in Careers 24, like the job mail, right? For a marketing manager or something like that. And this would be completely unheard of. And I don't necessarily know that it would, it would be, it would be, it would sound unprofessional. But not entirely because in those kinds of adverts, you also get, and I guess these, these kinds of discriminatory things come at varying scales mm. in the different kinds of environments or job applications that you find. So in some, you would find that someone must have a car and it's not quite as dehumanizing, mm. but it is quite exclusive. You know, so, mm. so it, it feels like at these different ranges of jobs, you get mm. these different kinds of problematic requests. But I feel like in a formalized environment, there are immediate ethical and professional flags in there. Like, um, okay, you, you must have a passport clean. from yeah. an ethical point of view. Uh, the idea that they can like hold your pa- passport ransom is a little bit absurd. And then the cleanliness thing. Now to say cleanliness is very different. You must be hygienic, for instance, is very different to saying you must smell nice and you must bath every day. Right. And, and twice a day. If and necessary. twice a day if necessary, because that now crosses the line that crosses a professional line. Mm. And there is an immediate assumption that they won't be clean. Yeah. So for me, if somebody was a professional writing this ad and if this was a formal and a regulated industry where the working conditions themselves were regulated and there were limitations, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be possible. But I don't know if that person is writing this in a professional capacity per se. I don't think they're in that. I'm trying to figure out what frame of mind you're in when you write an ad like that and put it out. Well, I feel like they are in a very professional headspace because it's it's very authoritative you know it's and it's so quickly and immediately establishing a very strong power dynamic where i am the boss this is what i expect as a boss and you know so so it it doesn't seem like it's just on a on a sort of casual capacity that she's throwing it out there that she wants a domestic but worker. now do people confuse professionalism with authority i think a lot of times yes aha you know, it's sort of the difference between a boss and a leader, which is, you know, I guess like something that, that a lot of industries are starting to realize now significantly different where one is just sort of uh, throwing throwing their weight around for the sake of mm. cementing the fact that they are in the leadership position, but not necessarily leading. So do you think that if bosses in any capacity exact authority right and set up criteria and certain boundaries they think by that virtue of exacting authority that they're acting professionally definitely but what i do also think is that it's not easy to lead people anyway um unless people are invested in a vision that you're building or they just they they have a personal satisfaction in the job it's just not easy to uh, for someone or to get the best out of someone if they simply don't want to do it. Mm. And so I think with that, um, and, and having some experience in that, it's, it's sometimes when you're, when you're not skilled, you can sometimes go to the aggressive stance because mm. it's easier. It's easier mm. to get out of people what you want mm. and what you need. And especially when there's time constraints, you've got deadlines, you've got pressure, mm. you're not trying to get to know someone <laughs> in order to get the best out of them so that they, you know, fulfill the deadline. So it's exactly yeah. the problem, my friend, or <laughs> <laughs> with 
informal work. Have you ever thought about that paradox? But it's a thing, like it can exist. It's such a conflicting expression that to say something is informal but work at the same time. Like I think to say that something is work requires a certain level of professional mindfulness. And the thing about professionalism is that it's a two-way street, right? And in many ways, her rights or whoever's rights, whoever that ad is going out to, their rights have been kind of written out of it. So if, if a sector is informal, it is at odds with, with work and what it means to have a job. Because the whole point of, of having a job, I feel like that thing is like fundamentally, uh, supposed to create certain mutual rights, responsibilities, expectations. Yes, I agree. Um, although I'm finding it interesting that you're calling the domestic worker industry an informal. No, I've kind of industry. resigned myself. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. It's a pseudo formal industry. I don't know what we call this thing, but it's almost, it almost so adds it's not insult. Regulated enough. Yeah, it almost adds insult to injury that it's, um, allegedly <laughs> mm. regulated, but grossly underregulated. Yeah. And especially with the, the high levels of illegal immigrants that mm. do the job, it's very easy for it to, to rather be informal than formal. I guess what I'm saying is something must either be informal or it must be formal. You know what I mean? If it's informal, um, then all the rules go out the window and like, I'm your quite, bitch. I don't quite think so because I don't think it's paperwork that actually enforces rules. I think it's um, human human contact and human engagement and human transaction that actually creates it. And with formal economies and formal systems, paper follows human transaction. Um, so, but then human tr- transaction follows paper. Yes, I think they reinforce each other. But um, I do think that they. I mean, we have so many um, informal economies that. When, when you really get into, to researching how they actually function, how they, they seem to be as productive as they are, um, as profit generating and as sustainable as they are, there's so many unwritten rules that everyone has agreed on. They know how the system works. They know how it functions. There's a level of respect to the sustaining of that structure. So it's not necessarily because something is informal that it cannot sustain a certain set of refined principles that really sustain a healthy way of practicing it. Um, but I think that's when we can maybe get into the, the conversation around the power dynamics that have been really written into the domestic worker employer dynamic. Because mm. I think that that's the thing that completely um, perverts the way that dignity is taken away or enforced, uh, what people think they can demand you know, it's a sort of entitlement versus discrimination. Like, can someone feel entitled to demanding anything they want of their employer? Or is there, can we call out a level of discrimination? You know, um, I think those lines are so blurred because of where the domestic worker sector or how the domestic worker sector was, was designed and built into the nature and fabric of the apartheid movement. It's very complex, isn't it? But... Yeah, for me, like what almost perverts it um, by making what actually are very informal criteria and putting them in a job post um, and calling it that is that you can write ethics out of it and you can write all of these um, like exploitive mm. human expectations that take liberties yeah. into it. Yeah. And I think that it's not necessarily written as that but potentially written as how can it benefit me the most you know and if it happens at the expense of someone else oh well at least i've given them a job you know so so they've sort of always got that to fall back on at least this woman who might not have otherwise had a job finally does so i get to now demand you know so so it's and I mean, I th- I think that's actually what they call moral licensing, where because you do something mm. morally good, 
it gives you the room to do something less morally good and sometimes immoral. Um, so I, yeah, I, I definitely think the, the industries, just, the industry performs on moral licensing. I think that this false regulation is hiding, is, is, is allowing people to hide behind, um, like frameworks and a, a professional space that doesn't exist. But it, but it does because they, and I'm they saying they, they, a, they're hiding, they're hiding, um, self-interest and exploitation. Yeah. Behind those things. Yeah. But I think that there's enough, there's enough regulation for them to not take it exceptionally far in terms of, I don't know, maybe physically beating their domestic workers. I mean, which some do, yes, mm. but, um, but certain things, I think, you know, like she wouldn't write in the advert, if you do not do what I ask, I will beat you. Mm. You know what I mean? So I think there's, there's, there's enough hanging over employers' heads to know that there would be repercussions if they take it beyond a certain limit, mm. but as well, not enough that they do, that there is room to take it quite far. If you use the enforcement without the code of ethics and the regulations, just the enforcement quality, and you put on a professional hat and you apply that professional hat to expectations and self-interest and prejudices that aren't regulated, Mm. then it's problematic. So should we come at a law firm asking for straight hair on all women as harshly as we come after her? Who asks for cleanliness because both of those things come from a prejudiced stance. Mm. But for me, there's a a grosser personal violation in the other one because there's a difference between asking someone to have long hair and then asking someone to bath. Like long hair, you can you can gauge. It's quite easy to measure whether or not someone has long hair. For me, the other problem here is like, you must smell a certain way and you must bath every day. How, like you were saying early on, how are you going to gauge that? And that's where it goes into a very, um, dangerous space for me. Mm. Where in order to measure that requires a certain violation of dignity. Do, do you associate, um, the freedom to, to carry your own identity, choose and carry your own identity um, to human dignity? First of all, yes, in a sense, but I do think that when you're in a, a workplace or you're under a certain brand, that there can be requirements and you can mutually agree to a contract that waves your like certain parts of your personal identity yeah. because it needs to create uniformity with the brand. So the issue isn't quite that, right? Which I think brands and even individuals have have some right mm. to to have those kinds of demands. Where and and why I I keep trying to make the comparison is because to demand long straight hair, for instance, mm. is unnatural for a black woman, mm. right? So it speaks to the defaults that we understand as as beauty, mm. as what is defined as beauty or what is designed defined as professional. Mm. So it's it's those kinds of things where it's not just telling you um, subscribe to our brand mm. or our brand intent or identity, mm. but but we're also telling you that the way that you naturally are is problematic. And so not not only do you have to let go of your identity, but your identity is also wrong. Mm-hmm. Um and so and so so there's a there's a prejudicial nature to what they are asking. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that they're not allowed to ask. Um and so I wonder again with the cleaning thing, I know I know that they they have been preconceptions that you know by by white people that black people are dirty mm. um that's sort of no secret mm. so and i think when they maybe get to know us or around us or whatever they they, they start to think differently but some don't mm. um and it's just because our, our sort of living habits are different and we don't understand each other's living habits and that kind of stuff mm. so 
it's also from a position of prejudice. Mm. And both of them are grounded so, in human dignity. For me, there is a difference in the sense that I have no issue with, I'd have much less of an issue with her putting cleanliness there as a requirement and leaving it at that. Mm. Right? Because I think, yes, that's arguable from a an ideological perspective, you know, as to whether that violates her right to personal freedom and identity, mm. right? Maybe she chooses just not to be clean. That's the same argument you would apply in a corporate situation about someone's hair mm. or a similar one, mm. right? This thing for me crossed the line when it said cleanliness, okay, you must wash twice a day and you must smell nice. I want to know... What is the performance measure? How do you screen for that? If you could, t- I can tell you, I know how these corporates are chair, whether or not I agree, but I know how they screen for natural versus non-natural hair, right? It's not hard, mm. right? It's purely like, it's a visual screen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so then the conversation is kind of very ideological and we must now talk about like values and, and, and human rights and identity on a larger scale. But when you say someone must smell nice and bath twice a day, uh, I don't know how you're going to screen for that, but it probably entails violating, like actually violating them. <laughs> to be devil's advocate, uh-huh. <clears throat> please. Because um, domestic workers do hard labor. Mm. People who do hard labor smell. Mm. And this is most of the time why I hate doing hard labor. I just feel mm. hot and nasty and just dirty. Um, and so what if the request was because of the fact that domestic workers do Perfect. hard labor. And so they are bound to Perfect. smell. It's not, it's not. You see. In any kind of unhealthy way or any preconceptions that black people stink. And so, so what if the test is truly, you know, uh, if she walks past her and she smells something, she should go shower or if, or maybe she should, she's got two hours in the day where it's sort of, sort of standard times that she must shower just so that they avoid any kind of awkward encounters or something. I have a problem with screens that are not objective. I feel like if you're not allowed braids at a company, you're not allowed braids. It's an objective screen. You can ask anyone. It's a visual screen. We can all tell you whether you have braids or not. Smell is not, <laughs> smell is not objective. But I mean, it's so different when someone is smelling you, um, because they just, Think that you would stink mm. Versus when they're smelling you Because you are someone That does hard labor all the time mm. And are probably likely to not Smell great mm. like the, the, You know those two yeah. things would make you feel very different but It's also confirmation bias Yeah, you know, You're know, going to look for it Because smell is subjective Because you're going into it with a belief But you know smell is smell hey Like when a bad smell is there a bad smell is there Fine let's say the <laughs> the, let's say the small one is even what slightly if, objective. What if it was just about wording and that's what she meant? I, fair. You're doing a me I and am. I love you for I it. I am. I will wave small. I, I will wave it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Next one. Illness. I will wave small. You are, I even forgot about illness. Friend. No, you need to. I know. Hear me I out. can't even. This bathing situation. I can't. Ex- no, we've got to interrogate the bathing situation. Please, this is for me, this is the dangerous, dangerous area, right? And I, I'm saying this is a dangerous area. Now I'm putting on my serious voice. I'm saying this is a dangerous area for domestic work in terms of domestic violence and violation. Do you know what I mean? We know how often domestic workers are sexually mm, violated absolutely. behind the scenes. Yeah. Okay. So this is creating a condition where to screen it, you've got to be intimately in someone's in environment. How else are you going to... Potentially. Potentially. But how else are you going to... Tell me how else you're going to do it. Bath twice a day, friends. That's, That's very specific. Yes. But but again, like I say, she might have thought, actually, I'm just going to give her two designated hours where she must bath. You know what I mean? So again, I don't... 
I don't want to presume how she will screen it because it can, yes, be absolutely violating, I'm just but it also might not saying be. to monitor someone's bath schedule. I don't think it always has to be intimate, really. Potentially. Yes, it has a potential to be, but it might not always be. Creates dangerous territory. Yeah. That's it. That's all I'm saying. Mm. And given, and also this will set a precedent. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Whether or not we say something like this is viable, we'll set a precedent. Mm. And by we, I don't mean you and I. I'm saying a society. Mm. Okay. Because maybe she will put up a, a schedule and like, I don't know, she'll check the water meter. And maybe it's not, maybe she's not big brother. And she won't put a camera in or sit with her domestic worker while she baths. But some people, because again, this is unregulated, some people will think that's okay. Yeah. I wonder that about that though. Like, would someone see that as any kind of normal human behavior? Yes. Even if they feel entitled to doing it, wouldn't they in the back of their heads think, How many violations have you heard of? No, I mean, I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. But I do wonder how much, how much people know is not quite okay. Whether they can articulate why it's not okay or not, whether they can completely define what's wrong with it or not. I wonder if in the back of their heads, you know, sort of the way that our guts work, the way that our guts work for us, Mm. you know, whether they can feel that something is strange about it, but they still feel entitled to doing it. So here's an, another interesting spin, which I feel like is causing the situation. It's very much the nature of domestic work being intimate, right? So because someone is so intimately involved with our hygiene, our cleanliness, mm. okay, we feel entitled to being intimately involved with whether or not they're hygienic or clean. Mm. Okay. Because they work so closely and the two, in a sense, impact one another. Mm. Okay. And again, because it's such intimate work and in many ways she's a surrogate and she's, uh, so she's like a co-parent or even in many cases, like a co-wife. Right. And so she's so involved in your intimate spaces. I don't know that because of that, I don't know that people necessarily set boundaries in terms of how they screen their domestic workers, which is why we often hear of show me the results of your AIDS test or they'll go into their rooms when they're not there. Right. Mm. And it's a weird but normal, I suppose, expectation. Mm. That if somebody is allowed in your personal space, mm. you should be allowed in theirs. This, this is, it's, it's so tricky, right? It's highly tricky. It's so tricky because for me, for instance, right? If, okay, so if someone is in my home dealing with my food, dealing with my children and also doing hard labor, so it's also bound to get cuts and that kind of stuff, right? I can, I could understand if I would want to know that my domestic worker doesn't have AIDS, for instance. Mm. Where I think it's wrong is when they assume that she has it. You know what I mean? So so it's like, I don't necessarily think it's completely wrong to want to uh, protect your children or keep them safe or your family or whatever. But I do think that it crosses the line when it becomes these natural assumptions because mm. of, again, bias and that kind of stuff. That's where it crosses the line, and because constitutionally, even with, with it crosses it. the line when you're forced to disclose. Yes, completely. Your status. Completely, but but um, how do we win? How do realistically, we realistically? Mm-hmm. Would you not want to know? My friend, and then it's up to you. You, know, you, you can. Would, she can keep her job. She explain, can, you know what I, I mean? I would want to know. Now, this is the difference between the things and the. Because <laughs> the way I'm all about dignity, yeah, but <laughs> this is this is the difference between like the 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 fears, often irrational, and the anxieties and and neurosis we have internally. All of those internal battles, mm. okay, and what we put out, which can then end up violating somebody else's freedoms. I right? completely agree. We've yeah. we've got to unfortunately self-regulate these things, right? And so. 
Yes, mm. I would internally. I'm not going to lie to you, right? Internally, I would like to believe that the woman or man who is working intimately in my home with my kids, cooking our food. Using knives. Using knives is not ill. And I'm not even going to say with what, right? There's so many ways to contract illness mm. and different types of illness. So ideally, I would like to believe that they're not ill because it's a very, the same way you would like to believe your doctor's not ill. Yeah. Or your nurse. How, how about this? Would, would it be okay if, say we went on like family um, testing? So say every three months, every six months, whatever, we all go to do family testing to actually just check our health and check any illnesses or whatever. And she comes along. No. So it's like a family no. thing. No. How Be- come? <laughs> How come? No, because I mean, the truth is HIV AIDS is a reality and we interact with it. And people who have HIV AIDS, we interact with personally. Mm. To some other extent, every single day, you're... They're not cutting my food. You use public... They're not treating my children. You use public toilets. Okay. Um, What's the likelihood of finding You take take your kids to to a doctor or to a nurse. Mm. Okay. You don't know what they have. Um, We get food from Nando's. There are people in the kitchen preparing that food. You don't know what they have. But no, no, but no, 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 but those, those, those are environments that have regulatory systems in place. In your home, you're the one that creates this it. This is exactly. So why don't you get to do that? That's exactly what bring, this is what it brings me to, right? Mm. You hope in that, in those industrial professional spaces, they have put controls or safety mechanisms in place. Mm. For instance, doctors wear gloves. Mm. Okay, mm. you hope that they've done that in order to protect you. They definitely don't require those people to disclose, disclose their illnesses. Yeah, right. But they take the onus upon themselves because the risk on the part of the corporate or the brand with customers, it's a risk, mm. right? Not to put those controls in place. Now, why can't you take? I'm saying, as an employer, mm. you've got to take on the onus mm. to some extent, mm. and rather than requiring your employee or your domestic worker to disclose their illnesses, you've got to find ways to create safety mechanisms in your home and to formalize your own environment. How do you do that with, with someone cutting your food up? I don't know. Do, like, you know, because you, like you can't predict what happens. I understand, but then, you know, maybe speak to, I don't know, restaurants with kitchens and like, see how they do it. And like children fall a lot. They scratch themselves. They're always bleeding every three days. No one is you know going to ask I mean? a nursery school teacher or a nurse at a nursery school for an HIV. Are you sure? Yes. It's constitutionally not allowed. But you, please feel free. I listen. I stand to be corrected. At all times. So if you can find, if you can find that, I will be shocked. But non-disclosure as far as I know is a very, very concrete. Um, I am so on the ethical (laughs) constitutional principle. I am completely on the ethical fence about this. But I'm just saying, I just want employers, all types of employers, but particularly in, in, Domestic work, right? If they have fears and if they want to have this kind of stringent criteria to also, first of all, have a level of um, mindfulness in terms of, of dignity and boundaries, for, to, to build in boundaries for the other person, but also to take the onus on, on themselves it's just interesting because that plays right into what a lot what we've thought is quite problematic about the industry or employers assuming that domestic workers have AIDS. Mm. You know, so if we were to do that, if we were to just make our homes ready um and and safeguard it mm. just in case she does, mm. it still plays right into the we all assume that domestic workers have AIDS. Issue. No, but and so the ones that don't have, no, will but, think, oh God, great! Like you think I've no, got AIDS, but no, no, no. You're gonna do it professionally, like any other industry, 
would and people are going to people are going to have these fears in any case and it's just a question of of what you do with them for me it's never been a an issue about the fears and the the perceptions and the profiling which profiling is useful to some extent right but, but you know how how dangerous it is with it's the domestic work industry it's extremely dangerous and for me it's particularly dangerous when that profiling leads you to violate somebody's personal freedoms yes and their dignity and so yes. i'm saying we could find a way profiling is going to happen fears are going to happen but for me it's about what you do with that Yes, I agree. That's problematic. I agree. What I just find interesting is how it can look exactly like what's happening now already, mm. you know? But I don't, yeah, that one's a hard one to change. Eh? Because then, because have we been getting it wrong the whole time? Have people just been safeguarding their homes? <laughs> because. But you just said it now. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of the beauty in it for me is I feel like, you know, in many ways we come full circle with this stuff and we've learned to be so balanced because we start off, uh, very defensive on the domestic workers part and very protective, right? Yeah, and protective. empathic. I think protective rather than mm. quite defensive. No, but it sometimes made me defensive, admittedly. Mm. Okay. And then we go full circle and we start to think of ourselves shucks as employers and now people potentially who will have families one day and children mm. and how must they feel? Mm. You know what I mean? So for us to admit that the fear exists, us who actually do have the domestic workers' best interest and dignity at heart mm. means that that thing is is there. Yeah, no, I completely among agree. the best of us. I completely agree, mm. and we are the best. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you were. Go- I think that covers the illness bit, huh? Yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think we got that down. Uh, <laughs> but the, yeah, the passport thing. I mean, that's definitely worth talking so, about. That's so interesting because. Um, and it might be strangely <laughs> two Sundays off every month. Actually, I mean, even yeah, oh, but the too passport much, thing much, is interesting, much. right? Because we know that people are more likely to take liberties and to exploit foreign domestic workers or foreign employees. Yeah. Okay. Because they perceive them as desperate. Yeah. Which they are a lot of the time. Okay. Yeah. So if for me, the passport thing says to me, perhaps she was writing, because she didn't say ID, she said passport, mm-hmm. right? She was writing that thing with the mindset of somebody who is employing a foreign domestic worker, which tells us a lot about her boundaries and limitations in terms of the criteria mm. she was creating. Interesting. What I wonder... Is do you think it's easier for um, white South Africans to employ black foreigners, or just just South Africans can... that are in a in an okay place, you know, financially? Do you think it's easier? It's it's sort of uh, emotionally and and socially and psychologically easier to employ a foreigner because they're not intertwined in the histories of because our past. Because they're not as woke. They're not as woke. <laughs> Who? Which one? You assume that foreigners are not as um, legally equipped, right? They don't necessarily always have recourse because they don't have papers. Mm. Okay. Maybe but they don't even know the, the extensive history exactly, of the Exactly. And they're also not embroiled in our yeah. prejudices yeah. and our rules of engagement as a society. So yes. they're less likely to call you out. And whenever you're in a foreign environment, wherever you are, right, even if you're I don't know, upper middle class and traveling France. Mm. Okay. When you're in a foreign environment, the natural instinct is to try and waive your own perception Mm. and your own identity Mm. in order to try and fit in. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, I mean, most, most foreign, uh, black Africans, will tell you that their perception of black South Africans is that they still have a boss mentality. Mm. And so even though, 
I mean, yeah, y'all are fighters and stuff, you know, like you, you, you get, you, you go after your you democracy, see, you do. But so at true. the same time, it's very interesting how in very one on one engagements between black and white, those and, you know, people of color and white, those dynamics are still so evident, you know, that in your head, you're saying one thing and you're fighting, kicking, screaming, but you know, to the but man, I, to the boss. Exactly. And that's exactly, not the, that's not always a contradiction I find with foreign domestic workers because often I find they're more submissive. And this is why, <laughs> and it's situational submissiveness, but this is why, um, South African employers prefer them, right? As I find them in many ways, more submissive than South African domestic workers. Whenever we've had, and I found that in our own home, um, and this perhaps applies broadly, mm-hmm. is that the South African domestic workers, because they can identify with you, will give you shtick and attitude and I, take liberties. I think the exact opposite. Because of, and it's not just that they know the history, it's that they live it. It's mm. that the constant, um, reinforcing of, of who is boss and who is not and, you know, and how entrenched it is in everyday practice. Mm. I find that they're less likely to do that and, and that the foreigners are less likely to retaliate because of how much they have to lose. But I feel like it's completely different things that create those passive Reactions, but have you not found South African domestic workers to be more vocal and more feisty? Not even close. No, no, I haven't. I've completely found that. I mean, I think of somebody, and this is one example. Obviously, it's not by any means meant to represent the masses, um, but it's food for thought. I mean, I find someone like Julie. Yeah, yeah, right. Who's Penny Stan's domestic worker? But Penny is also Penny. Penny's also Penny. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know what I mean. So, so it's, yes, personalities start to define the Messi. nature of relationships. I don't know how she is with her employer. But we know her employer because her employer is from Cliff Central. And actually that relationship had to come to an end. Was she working for her? Not, yeah. not, no. Oh, okay. And that relationship mm-hmm. ultimately had to end because her employer said, look, I just needed to give this, this woman wings. She was like, um, Mm. You know, she was not, <laughs> she's just not the subservient type, <laughs> mm, mm. right? She needs to do her own thing. If you think about, um, Jane at Cliff Central. Yes, Jane. Right? Yeah. yeah. Very kind of bossy mm. persona. Mm. Definitely stands her ground. Yeah. Um, so I, I think personalities still, like that. I still think it's a personality thing and not necessarily a South African or foreigner thing. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure yet, mm. but, um, yeah, that's been my impression. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I don't have enough uh, research and data to back yeah, me up. Yeah, no, neither do I. So yeah, we're it's, just going to have to go on hunches here. No, but I mean, yeah, I, I find it really interesting. Actually, it's it's such a good thing you point out that she just, she actually, she did this for a foreign woman. Mm. She she wrote this for a foreign woman. Mm. So, um, and it's, I think it's actually worth looking into that, you know? Mm. The kind of dynamics that are created because you're foreign or because you're South African. So that was the first thing about the passport. The other thing I was curious about, is it legal to actually hold someone's passport ransom? Again, I don't know the laws on this, but I doubt it. Mm -hmm. I highly doubt it. And especially because foreigners need their paperwork at all times. Mm. You know, like in this country, you always need it. So Can we say that it's... Equivalent to holding someone hostage it Because is. you're actually taking away someone's mobility It is And it's interesting because it follows with no criminal records But a lot of foreigners get arrested When they don't have their passports mm-hmm. on them So you actually make them susceptible to mm-hmm. getting arrested And then getting into the criminal system mm-hmm. So it's just completely ironic <laughs> But I'm sure, yeah she didn't quite think about that And work is sleep in Monday to Sunday So they're working in they're working from Monday to Sunday with two Sundays off every month, but they only get paid 2000 Rand. Now that is typical mm. monopolization of time mm. that must stop in mm. the whole of life. There's literally no justification for that. No, it's too ever. terrible. It's too terrible. And actually this reminds me of the other ad. Um, I don't know if it followed this or if it was before, but it was also before. quite a, a contentious ad. And the main contention was that it was this couple from Camps Bay, which is perceived to be upper middle class, higher class community and they put out an ad for a domestic worker and they were going to pay her 2,000 rand a month or something or no, 2.5 1,000 
Oh, was it a thousand? Yeah. No, no, no. So, so yeah. So she said that they wanted to pay her two thousand five hundred, but she accidentally wrote that she wants to pay a thousand five hundred. Oh, accidentally. Yes, that's what she says. Right. Yeah. Okay. So basically, nothing was wrong with the ad, and it spoke very. It, it you know, the tone was completely different mm. because it just basically stated like a in in list form <clears throat> what they want. So. Uh, duties include cleaning, basic cooking. So, she, she, so they weren't saying you must clean, you must, mm. you know. So everything was was, I guess, okay. No, no one disputed. Yeah, no one disputed anything until they said pay is a thousand five hundred rand per month plus UIF plus one week paid leave. So let's look at this where a lot of these disputes were coming from. Okay, so some people cited very few people, but some did cite. Um, the minimum wage for domestic workers. Yes. Uh, can, can and 1.5 is grossly under. Uh-huh. Can I also just mention, uh, the, the people that, the tweeted in, you know, responding to it were white people. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if that means anything. Interesting but, peer review. It yeah. always means something, girl. What do you, you mean? You know what don't I'm saying? Know. I'm trying to what just, mean something? I'm just trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'm going in. <laughs> but okay. So, you know, some people cited minimum wage. Um, yeah. Which is like a, a legitimate resource mm. or reference, rather, mm. Mm. Um, because it's a regulation. But as far as I could tell, the majority of the people had an issue with the fact that this is a camp's bay couple. Yes. Right? So the issue with the wage was in relation to their wealth, which is bizarre and kind of led me to this thinking where I'm sure... Again, because of how informal and underregulated the space is, a lot of South Africans apply their own professional logic or their own uh, regulatory logic and they go, well, rich people should have to pay domestic workers more. Mm. And much like progressive tax, P-A-Y-E, the more you earn, the more you taxed. The more you earn, the more you should have to pay your domestic worker. Mm. Very, very interesting thinking, probably applied by people constantly. Mm. They think about the domestic worker's wage in relation to their own wage. Well, I don't, I don't want to say constantly because some people just don't care. Yeah. Actually, I feel I'm like mostly, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> this is, is, is seemingly like a very, um, logical and systematic approach. That is actually, is, is like a little bit faulty. I don't know what you think about it. It's so interesting, actually, as you said those things. What I was wondering is, like any subsidy system, say you can afford 10,000 rand to pay to your domestic worker. Mm. Um, let's say, let's make it higher. So say you can afford to pay 20,000 rand to mm. your domestic worker, right? Mm. But you don't necessarily need to pay her that much because you can afford it because, mm. you know, it's still about what kind of work she does mm. and, you know, and that kind of stuff. Um, what if it worked in a kind of subsidy model where, where she maybe gets paid 8,000 rand for you and that mm. the 12,000 that you can afford almost becomes like a tax that then subsidizes other domestic workers in you less see. fortunate environments or, or with, with employers that can't afford living wages That's and then brilliant. yeah and That's then and so yeah it, brilliant. It's, it's a trickle down system. That's brilliant and we've got to find a way to get that thing in there. Yeah. In Parliament. However, the trick is going to be it's got to be voluntary, right? And that's the point that yes. I'm making here. Does it? It's. I mean, it's got to be how more, voluntary. How voluntary is taxes or the tax system? Exactly, and this brings me to my point on this thinking. This thinking is not remuneration thinking. This thinking is tax thinking. I'm trying to understand why people think of paying their domestic workers as a form of tax, because it, that is a tax approach. So, yes, absolutely. But some things can only be afforded <laughs> through a subsidized system. Mm. But so it's not necessarily that it takes away the the sort of intimate nature of determining so for, someone's living wage, but if that's how it can be afforded, maybe it's worth considering. But as for a me, systemic thing. Tax for instance pays for social welfare. Mm. Right. Mm. And I think that's where even if people don't like realize it subconsciously, that's where they're taking it. Social, social welfare is seen as charity. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so many South Africans, I've said often, <laughs> domestic workers in this country do so much charity in our homes. They do more charity than any CSI department. <laughs> like mm, mm. They're more altruistic than 
anybody else. And in kind, we almost pay them in charity. Yes, absolutely. In a very, very strange way, right? And for me, this kind of thinking is what's going to continue to brand this space in a charitable way. Rather than saying, yes. here is the value. Here are the hours. Here are the responsibilities. Okay. Here is the value you're bringing in. Here's mm. what we're compensating you. Mm. These are the regulations. And this... Unless that money is framed differently as investments rather than, I guess, like, I don't know, donations or whatever. You know, where what you're doing is investing mm. in the thing that, that runs our socioeconomic so you see, landscape. You've just made your own idea even that much more powerful. Thanks. Should be like, Stop. should be like a, an investment. Yeah. Like a social, instead of social welfare, we should have social investment. Maybe if the government even framed it that way, Nicole. people would be more happy to pay tax. Yeah, but you see, the thing is, um, social grants, okay, I think it's always an investment to invest in, uh, the dignity of the, the sort of lowest citizen. I say that in inverted commas and lowest, I just mean economic. Mm. Um, I think that's always an investment because basically what you're doing is determining the, what dignity looks like in your society. Mm. Um, so, so that's a fundamental investment. So, um, but and and that kind of investment is completely different to investing in what domestic workers do, which is to literally have the country running and functioning. Mm. You know, so so that kind of investment would be on functional terms uh, that also contributes to dignity, but the other um, would be more moral investment. Mm. So I think there can be different compartments mm. of of investment but i certainly think that we do have to start looking at these things as investments because mm. to be very honest every facet of society affects us mm. and the wealthy yeah it affects them less but it does affect them we we do certainly have to start uh defining things on those terms because they really are investments mm. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, with that and our very many ramblings and insights and breakthroughs. <laughs> what we can do with a simple <laughs> ad. I know. Um, yeah, Mali, you want to share a thought of the day? Um, well, I mean, it's different from the, the original thought of the day was linked to, um, the ad. Really, like, what is a, a, a professional and a dignified ad for a domestic worker look like? But instead now, um, I just actually want to throw out a question based on the discussion we've just had. So I want you to ask yourself, what in society should constitute a tax and what should constitute an investment? Absolutely. And what are the things we're framing as taxes that are actually investments? And perhaps what are the things that are actually investments that we're framing as taxes because i mean it completely determines what we perceive of value mm. you know what we think and i mean really all of us are self-preservational and we and remember in the beginning i never used to agree with you about that <laughs> but um and and so it could really change the nature of what we think is self-investment uh if we if we are a lot more deliberate about what we term as investment versus tax Hmm. And we leave you with that. Yes. Thank you for joining us on the Make Sessions with CliffCentral.com. How do they get in touch with us? Go to Twitter at Made Project. That's M-A-I-D-E Project. As well as our Facebook page, The Made Sessions. Again, M-A-I-D-E Sessions. We're always so, so happy to hear from you. Um, and let us know your thoughts. Make sure to join us next week. We love you. Love ya. Bye. Bye. Cliff Central. The revolution. I've got something important to tell you. CliffCentral.com.